Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Well, happy Memorial Day again to those of you that are here and for those of you that are online um, because you're traveling, spending time with loved ones. Um, This is a weekend that we don't just grill burgers and have fun, but we remember those that have sacrificed their lives for um, our country and for the sake of our freedom to be able to worship together on a morning like this. Now, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but um, I'm not a very athletic person. Uh, I despised PE when I was in school. In fact, I'm the only person in my family that nearly failed elementary school PE because I forgot my clothes so many times. And I say forgot because the punishment or the consequence for not bringing your PE clothes was that you got to sit on the sidelines and write an essay about anything that you wanted. And faced with the choice between getting hot and sweaty and doing things that I didn't like and I wasn't really good at, or sitting on the sidelines and writing an essay, it was a no-brainer to me. I was going to write as many times as I could. How many of you would be with me wanting to sit on the sidelines writing an essay? Oh, come on. We have so many people here that would want to get... Who wants to get hot and sweaty and then go back to math class? That's just not my thing. So when I graduated high school, I thought that I was going to be forever free from P.E. until I realized that as part of their liberal arts curriculum, Houghton College had a P.E. requirement for every student that went there. So I remember looking through the course offerings and thinking, I didn't want to trudge my way through an actual graded class on things that I had spent my whole life embarrassing myself in. So I was looking through the list, and all of a sudden I realized I could fulfill my P.E. requirement with an introductory horsemanship class. Now, I didn't know how to ride a horse, but it sounded like fun, so I thought that I would give it a shot. And other than having to muck out the stalls, I actually really liked the class. I got down the basics of dressage and made it through a few trail rides, which was absolutely beautiful in like the fall foliage of Western New York. But there's one thing I learned in that class that I don't think that I'm going to soon forget. So early on, we were practicing just riding around in circles in the indoor arena, and our instructor told us that you had to always look in the direction that you wanted your horse to head. Now, you might think that that's just like a thing that they tell newbies so that they don't get distracted, kind of like the driving instructor turning off the radio when you're learning how to drive. Um, But there was actually more to it, because believe it or not, horses can detect even the slightest shift in your weight, even that comes from just moving your eyeballs. Now that sounded a little weird to me. I didn't fully believe my instructor. So I decided to try it out. One day I was riding down the length of the arena and I kept my body straight and my head straight, but I shifted my gaze ever so slightly to the middle of the uh, arena. And sure enough, my horse started to drift toward the center of the arena. Where you fix your eyes makes a difference. And not just in horsemanship. Psalm 73, that chapter that the kids just read so well a few moments ago, caught my attention several weeks ago during our weekly staff meeting. We've been taking time for listening prayer every staff meeting, just sitting quietly in God's presence and listening listening for what he has to say, whether it's to us individually or to us corporately as a body. And oftentimes when I do that, I pray with my Bible open in front of me. I found that God tends to speak through a slow, meditative journey for me through scripture. So 
I'll uh, read the first few verses of a psalm and then sit quietly meditating on them and then pray whatever it is I feel God leads me to pray based on those verses. And then I sit there quietly and wait for him to speak. And when he's done, then we move to the next few verses and keep going until the psalm is done or God directs me otherwise. So Psalm 73 was the chapter that he directed me to a few weeks ago, and I had this sense as I prayed through it that there was something in there not just for me, but for us as a church family. So that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. So if you closed your Bible already, I want to invite you to open it back up to Psalm 73 um, so that we can walk through that together. You may notice at the top of that psalm, it says that it's a psalm of Asaph. And if you've ever noticed, a lot of the psalms are attributed to King David, but some of them are attributed to Asaph. So if you've ever seen that name and wondered who is Asaph, um, we can tell not just through the psalms, but also in 2 Chronicles 29.30 that Asaph was a worship leader who wrote a number of psalms that were used in worship among God's people. So he begins this psalm with a statement that is similar to a lot of ones in scripture. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And to me, that opening sounds a lot like the refrains that I heard in church circles when I was growing up. Like when I was a kid, one of my pastors used to bring Psalm 122 and 133 to mind as he began the announcements every week by saying, surely it is good to be together in the house of the Lord. Amen. Every week. Another one of my childhood pastors used to close every service with Paul's exhortation in 2 Corinthians 13, 12 to greet one another with a holy kiss. That one was a little weird to figure out what he meant. <laughs> How do you greet someone with a holy kiss? So the first verse of this psalm sounds an awful lot like those sayings I used to hear, like something the member of a worship team might say before starting the, the first song or something that an enthusiastic church grandma would say as she's bursting through the doors on a sunny Sunday morning. But that's not entirely what Asaph is doing here. He isn't opening the psalm with some pithy, spiritual-sounding statement. He's beginning by putting a stake in the ground, by establishing the truth or the sacred principle to which he's going to hold fast, no matter what he says next. It's actually a pattern that we see elsewhere in Scripture, where an author or a speaker will establish a sacred principle before getting into their doubts or questions or whatever it is that they're going to say to God. For example, in Job 24, before Job launches into a series of complaints, he begins with the sacred principle that times are not hidden from the Almighty. In Jeremiah 12, before Jeremiah lays out his deeply seated questions, he begins with the sacred principle, righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. In Habakkuk 1, before Habakkuk delineates a second series of questions before the Lord, he begins with the sacred principle that you, the Lord, are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. So Asaph begins this psalm by saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is good, right? Surely God is good to those people that are following after him, right? That sacred principle is the direction toward which Asaph knows he should be fixing his eyes. But as we see in the verses that follow, as Asaph's eyes shift from that sacred principle, his heart begins to veer off course as well, just as my horse began to drift into the center of the arena. The kids read Psalm 73 from the NIV this morning, but I'm going to switch over to the message version for much of the rest of our time this morning, because I think the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases Asaph's struggle really captures it well. So the message version will be on the screen, but you can keep following along in your Bibles as well. So verses 1 through 5 in the message paraphrase reads, No doubt about it. 
God is good. Good to good people, good to the good-hearted. But I nearly missed it. Missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the world. From the sacred principle of God's goodness to his people, Asaph tells us how he fell into temptation. He started looking around him at all that seemed to be unfair in the world and feeling jilted. Verses 3 through 12 tell us that Asaph sees people all around him who are filled with arrogance and malice and all kinds of evil who seem to walk around healthy and strong without a care in the world. It can be maddening to see stuff like this happen. Maybe you've had the classmate or the coworker who can be so nasty to the people around them, but then all of a sudden when the boss or the teacher or the person who's in charge shows up, they turn sugary sweet. And the people in charge just think they're the best thing ever and you are seething on the inside because you have seen their true colors. Or maybe you've been part of a group project where one of the group members slacks off the entire time while you pull the lion's share of the load. And then on the day of the presentation, they somehow make it seem like they did all the work and shift the blame for the mistakes onto you. And the list could go on and on and on. The person who is debt-free yet ends up with a windfall of cash that they just blow on fancy toys or vacations while you are scraping by to make your student loan payment and buy groceries and still have a few dollars to be generous with. There's the person who parented by whatever standard they wanted, whose kids seem to be doing great. While you did your best to raise your child in the wisdom of ways of God, and yet they're struggling to find a footing in their life, finding purpose. There's the person who didn't study at all for the test and then cheated and aced it while you studied like crazy and scraped by with a hard-earned C. Even now, you probably have examples of your own coming to mind of times where you have tried to do things God's way, and it seems like people who did it their own way were turning out just fine. So when you're in that kind of place, when you feel like you're struggling or lacking or just plain old stuck, you can feel like Asaph in verses 11 through 14 when he expresses, What's going on here? Is God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made, piling up riches. I've been stupid to play along with the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck, that's what, and a slap in the face every time I walk out the door. Asaph is not alone in feeling this way. I know that I felt those same things in my heart, too. I've done what I was supposed to. I followed the rules. I got the pats on the back. I've done the right stuff. And yet, there have been times in life where I have felt punched in the gut and kicked to the curb. I saw everyone else just skating by in life, playing by their own rules and getting what they wanted. And wrestling through those times when everyone else seems to be getting married or landing the job or getting pregnant or taking fancy vacations or cheering for a team that actually wins a game every now and then, which, by the way, is not a reference specifically to Minnesota sports. I'm just saying teams in general that struggle to win. When you are wrestling through those times, it can leave you feeling like Asaph, beleaguered and bitter with a splitting headache from trying to figure it all out. When you're in a place like Asaph, you need space to be able to process what you're feeling. Several weeks ago when we were talking about anger, Pastor Corey talked about taking time to slow down and examine your anger and to pay attention to its source. And I think the same can be said of a lot of emotions that we might feel. Rather than being ruled by our emotions, we have to take time to process them in healthy ways. And that qualifier of healthy 
is an important one. In verse 15, Asaph reflects back on the bitterness and pain and anger that he's poured out thus far in the psalm, and he says, if I had given in and talked like this, I would have betrayed your dear children. Asaph is not saying that you can't process your pain or talk about it, but he is saying to be careful not to publish it for the infection of others, as one commentator put it. When you're processing emotions like Asaph, that is not the moment to turn to social media and let your fingers blaze away in a fury to post. You don't call up your yes person who's just going to rile you up further. And you don't leak your bitterness all over people who are not mature enough to carry that burden with you to Jesus and point you back to truth. These moments like Asaph's are one that you turn to a wiser and mature brother in Christ, or sister in Christ, who will sit across the table from you and listen to you, and then look you in the eyes and tell you, I know this is not easy, but I believe that God is good, and he is for you, and I'm here to walk with you until you make it through. Those are the moments that you pull out a journal and you pour out every ugly thing that has been festering in your heart. These are the moments that you take a long walk or a run, if you're more athletic than me, to pound some pavement. And there are sometimes moments, like this one, where you need to find a counselor who helps you untangle some of the mess that's bundled up in your heart. And these are the moments that you do what Asaph does. You take it to God. In verses 15 through 17, Asaph is reflecting back on all the pain and unfairness of what he's seeing around him and says, when I tried to figure it all out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I saw the whole picture. When Asaph brought his eyes back to the target, back to the goodness of God, he realized that God had not abandoned him at all. He continues on, when I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your presence. And now here's the part that gets me, the very next line. He's beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, totally dumb, an ignorant ox. He's in God's presence, and I'm still in God's presence. Asaph is acknowledging that God has never left him. Even in his moments of pain and bitterness and disappointment and anger, God hasn't gone anywhere. It's a beautiful and kind of annoying realization. And let me tell you what I mean by that. A couple of years ago, I was furious, furious with God. That description, totally ignorant, dumb ox, that was me. <laughs> I spent hours in counseling sessions just fuming. I was, it was an awful season, but remember, remember how I told you I was a good follower, a rule follower, like doing the right thing? In this moment where I was really mad with God, I was still doing my devotions every morning, which looking back, it's like, why was, why was I even bothering? I didn't even want anything to do with God. But I'll tell you, and this is the honest truth, the presence of God kept showing up every day. And I was annoyed by it. Like, I would open up my devotional and be overwhelmed with the sense of the presence of God. And I'm just, like, I'm talking to God saying, I don't even want you here. I don't even want to talk to you. I'm just trying to, like, check off the box to do the thing I'm supposed to do. And after a few weeks of anger-filled sessions, my counselor, who was both skilled at his craft and a seasoned pastor, looked at me and said, maybe God is still showing up because he still wants to be in relationship with you. Maybe he's not actually to blame. For what's going on. 
As the reality of that truth began to sink in, that moment became one for me where God did for me what he did for Asaph. Again, in verses 21 through 24, I am still in your presence, but you have taken my hand. You wisely and tenderly lead me, and then you bless me. For me, in that moment, nothing changed about the circumstances that had made me so angry with God. Nothing changed about the people that had hurt me. But what did change was where I had fixed my eyes. Not on the people, not on the circumstances, but on him and his loving persistence in pursuing me. So notice the shift in Asaph's writing in the last few verses. After he describes God taking him by the hand, you're all that I want in heaven. You're all that I want on earth. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is rock firm and faithful. Look, those who left you are falling apart. Deserters, they'll never be heard from again. But I'm in the very presence of God, and oh, how refreshing it is. I have made Lord God my home. God, I'm telling the world what you do. When Asaph has his eyes back on the goodness of being near God, he sees that he has everything he could ever want. The wicked people he was so fixated on in the first half of that psalm may have the fleeting things of this world, but Asaph has what will last. He has the presence of the rock-firm and faithful God of all, the God who brings refreshing deep within his soul. Asaph has seen the goodness of being near God and goes so far as to say he's making himself at home in God's presence. Now, I'm the last person, and I mean like a football field's distance away from the last person in line, kind of far away, to tell you that this is easy. Especially when the betrayal is deep, or the pain is sharp, the loss is crippling, or the injustice is overwhelming. But if you're finding yourself in a place like Asaph, I think this psalm can give us some direction forward. First, establish your sacred principle, like Asaph, and Job, and Jeremiah, and Habakkuk. Go back to what you know to be true about God and put your stake in the ground. Asaph's sacred principle was God's goodness to his people. Maybe for you, if you're feeling alone, your principle might be, God, your word tells me that you have never left me or forsaken me. If you're feeling despair, your sacred principle might be, God, your word tells me to put my hope in you because you are full of unfailing love and redemption. Or if you're feeling betrayed by God and you aren't sure if you believe much of anything about him, your sacred principle might just be, God, you are. I, I don't feel like I know for sure that you're anywhere closer than maybe you even exist, but I'm just going to choose to believe that you are. Establish your sacred principle. Then, as I talked about a little earlier, process what you're feeling. It doesn't do any good to suppress or stuff your emotions. But rather than publishing it for the infection of others, slow down and examine the feeling that's rising within you, whether it's angerness or despair or bitterness or betrayal or any number of other emotions. And pay attention to its source. Turn to a wise and mature brother or sister in Christ, journal it, go pound some pavement, find a counselor, whatever it takes. Process what you're feeling. Then turn your eyes back to God. As Asaph writes, you've never left his presence. He's been there all along. His heart is toward you, and he delights in, as he did for Asaph, taking your hand and wisely leading you, tenderly leading you, and blessing you. 
He is close to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. He hears your cries and he wants to sustain you. So turn your eyes back to him and ask him to help you see as he sees. Now, this step is not always easy, depending on what it is that you are walking through. That sacred principle might be more than a stake in the ground for you. It might be the life preserver that you are desperately clinging to in an ocean of chaos. But turn your eyes back to God and give him the chance to lead you and take you by the hand. In some of my darkest Asaph life moments, I've also found it helpful to look to the example of Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, including the temptation to take our eyes off of God and end up in the kind of place that Asaph was in the beginning of Psalm 73. In fact, the message paraphrases the beginning of Hebrews 12 in this way. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside God. When you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item, that long litany of hostility he plowed through. Jesus experienced every pain that we ever have and never lost sight of his father in the process. And we don't have to have time to go through the entire life of Jesus this morning. But before I wrap up, I want to look at two examples from the life of Jesus that our Foundations of Faith kids are very familiar with. Let's start with the account of the death of Lazarus, one of Jesus' closest friends. It's found in John chapter 11. Lazarus had been sick, and so his sisters, Mary and Martha, had sent for Jesus, knowing that he could heal their brother. But as our Foundations of Faith kids know, Jesus didn't come until Lazarus had been dead for how many days? You remember? I see four. Four. He had been dead for four days before he showed up. Jesus had told the disciples that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had a plan. He knew what was coming next. In fact, Jesus even laid out a sacred principle when he gets to the news of Lazarus' illness. In John eleven fourteen. this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's son might be glorified through it. He establishes at the beginning that he knows what is about to happen is not purposeless. It is for God's glory and it will not end in death. Yet, when Jesus arrives at the home and sees Mary weeping over her brother, verse 33 tells us he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. By the time he comes to Lazarus' tomb, he is once more deeply moved. He knows the miracle that is about to take place, and even still, he weeps. He acknowledges the pain that both he and Lazarus' loved ones feel, and he processes it, at least in part, through tears. He asks the people standing nearby to remove the stone, and as he does so, he keeps his eyes on his father, looks up and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I, knew that you, I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. Then he calls Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and to everyone's amazement, Lazarus comes back to life and walks out of the tomb. Or let's consider this example. I don't know if you've caught this before, but there's this profound point that's woven into a passage many of us have heard dozens, if not hundreds of times. Often when we take communion, whoever is serving 
We'll read from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul writes, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks. On the night he was betrayed, on the night one of his closest friends, one of his 12 disciples that he had poured his life into for three years straight, one of the people he should have been able to trust most, on the night he was betrayed and his journey to the cross began, he gave thanks. How? His eyes were on his father. He says later that evening, after he's washed his disciples' feet and shared a meal with them, taught them one last time, and then agonized in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, that this, the betrayal, the arrest, and all that's to come, this has all taken place that the writing of the prophets might be fulfilled. The story of Jesus is full of examples like this, but I think you see the point. When you know that God is good, but you lose sight of him, and your heart begins to veer toward the same temptation as Asaph's did in Psalm 73, remember that God is with you, that he has always been with you. Allow him to take you by the hand. Allow him to wisely and tenderly lead you. Allow him to bless you. And remember, as Asaph did in verse 28, that it is good to be near him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that even in our moments where we feel lost and distant, like a totally dumb and ignorant ox, when our hearts are full of pain, disappointment, despair, betrayal, whatever it is, that we are in your presence, that we have always been in your presence, and that you are faithful to wisely and tenderly lead us, to take us by the hand, and to remind us again of your goodness. This morning, God, I pray that, that we would be overwhelmed with that sense again, afresh in your presence, that we would sense your hand upon us, sense your love, and sense your goodness. It's in your name we pray. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.